Good morning, IEC. Welcome, Gena. Uh, today is a special Sunday for a few reasons. One for uh, me and my family. It marks a year of living in Ethiopia and serving here at IEC. And I want to let you know how grateful and what a wonderful congregation this is to serve. I remember a year ago uh, being commissioned here, and one of the challenges was for the church to uh, be a church that's easy to lead. And I tell you, this is a beautiful church and a wonderful people, and I'm so honored and grateful to get to serve here. I just want you to know how much me and my family feel blessed to be a part of what God is doing here in Ethiopia and here at IEC in particular. Well, as we mentioned earlier, our mission is to make disciples of the nations for the glory of God. That's what we're about here at IEC. And we started a new sermon series a few weeks ago in the Gospel of Matthew. We turn to God's Word because we realize that's what we need to hear from is God Almighty. And a few weeks ago, we've been looking at the birth narrative of Jesus Christ. It was appropriately timed that we looked at that during the Christmas season. Today, we pick up in a new section in the Matthew's Gospel. I've got an outline on the screen, or it will be on the screen in a minute, uh, showing you a, a flow to this book. I remember one time a mentor of mine said this to me. He said, don't just memorize scripture. He said, learn to think your way through a book. Meaning, you can, you can take a book of the Bible and you can think what happens in each chapter and what God is speaking. And though this outline is not divinely inspired, and this outline is not original to me, I do find it to be helpful for us as we journey through Matthew's gospel. Matthew is seeking to answer three predominant questions in this gospel. One, he's asking this, who is the king? The people of Israel, they've been looking for a king and they're wondering who is the king. Secondly, he's seeking to answer where is the kingdom? The Jewish people, they were waiting for a kingdom to come. They wanted to see the Roman oppressors pushed out and the kingdom of God established, but they believed it would be an earthly, physical kingdom. And third, he answers this. What does kingdom living look like? We've been in the section looking at the person of the king in chapters 1 and 2, and what we saw in that is that Jesus... Jesus meets all the qualifications. He's from the line of David. He's from, he was born in Bethlehem. He meets all the qualifications to be the Messiah. Well, now we're starting chapter 3, and we're going to look at the presentation of a king. In nearly every country on earth, when a new king comes to power, or a new prime minister, or a new president, or whoever that ruler may be that's coming into power, there is a process by which they bring that person into power and a ceremony. Well, today we're going to see the process by which Jesus Christ becomes king, king of the universe, king of all creation, that that is established and put forth. We're going to be looking at the forerunner to the king, here in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there with me. If you don't, the verses will be on the screen. But let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Hear the word of our Lord. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea 
Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a, a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, and the chafe he will burn with an unquenchable fire. This is the word of God for the people of God. And all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. <clears throat> God, your word says that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but that your word stands forever. And Lord, this is the word that we pray is preached today. Unless you speak, we know nothing of true significance we've spoken. So speak, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, our section today starts off with these words, in those days. Between chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Matthew, we see nearly a 30-year gap. The first two chapters, Jesus is born, and we see the first year, maybe two years of his life. Now we're 30 years later, and we see it's a difficult time. The nation of Israel is under heavy taxation, heavy persecution, Roman domination. In fact, the nation of Israel spent 600 years dominated by foreign oppressive rulers. And the nation wants those rulers gone. They're tired of having them. And also in those days, there's been a 400-year gap between when Scripture was written and closed in the Old Testament with Malachi and Matthew. 400 years where we haven't had Bible written. God has been at work, but this is often referred to the silent period, not because God wasn't working, but because the Word of God wasn't being written during that time. But it was during that time that we see several developments which will uh, inform the New Testament. We see several groups of people form. Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, Zealots, We'll see all of these in Matthew's Gospel, but you see none of them in the Old Testament. And each of these groups of people had a primary objective that matched. All of them wanted to see Rome gone. All of them, except the Romans, all of them wanted to see that they would never be carried into captivity again. 
The nation had been carried into captivity because they're idolatry. They don't want that any longer. So it's in this time that John the Baptist comes. He's called John the Baptist, also referred to as John the Baptizer. He is the forerunner of Jesus, and he has to be here. If Jesus does not have a forerunner, he is not, uh, does not have a claim to be Messiah. Messiah was to have a forerunner, and John the Baptist is that forerunner. His name literally means Jehovah's gracious gift, and that's what he'll prove to be. He's actually the last of the Old Testament prophets, then he transitions us from Old Testament to New Testament. He's a bridge person. He actually looks like the Old Testament. He dresses like they dressed in the Old Testament. He's an odd and peculiar looking man. He also comes from a miraculous birth. Luke's gospel records his miraculous birth. He's born to an elderly couple named Zacharias, who's a priest, and his wife Elizabeth. And throughout Scripture, whenever God is doing something and wants to make sure people are clear that this is the person that I have anointed for a unique task, often that person will be born in a miraculous way. We see Abraham and Sarah have a child named Isaac. We see Hannah have a son named Samuel. We see, um, we see others throughout Scripture. We see Samson born miraculously. We see Jesus born to a virgin. So John the Baptist, he's born to a couple that are well beyond the years of having a child. And it's as Zacharias goes in to pray to serve his course in the temple. They would have 24 courses throughout the year that the priest would go and serve, and his father, Zacharias, is what would be known as a common priest, and he would serve a couple times a year at the temple. And when he goes, the angel of the Lord speaks to him and tells him, you will have a child, and you are to name him John. Now, it's interesting. Zacharias, the name means this, God remembers. And his wife, his name is Elizabeth, her name means his covenant. Now, think about this. 400 years of silence. 400 years without Scripture. Everybody's wondering, does God remember us? Has He forgotten us? And here's this couple. And when you put their names together, it means God remembers His covenant. He has not forgotten. He is faithful. And this baby, John the Baptist, will be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. He'll be an interesting guy. He'll live like a hermit in the wilderness. He has no formal education that we know of. Yet in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, Jesus refers to him as the greatest man who ever lived. So we're looking at the life of the greatest man to ever live outside of Jesus Christ here in John the Baptist, and he's a picture of Elijah. He's a fulfillment of Elijah. And we're going to see, when we talk about Elijah, he is a picture of all the prophets. Oftentimes in Scripture, it will say Moses and Elijah. When it speaks of Moses and Elijah, it's speaking of the totality of the Old Testament. Moses, he signifies all of the law. Elijah, he signifies all of the prophets. And Elijah is known for his passion. He was a fiery man. He fought the prophets of Baal, 300 prophets of Baal, and defeated them and ran up and down a mountain. And John the Baptist, he comes as a man of deep passion. And here it says John the Baptist came preaching 
The word here literally means to herald, to announce, to proclaim. He's proclaiming this in the wilderness of Judea. And it's interesting where he goes. He goes to a wilderness. Now, I don't know what you think of when I say the word wilderness. I often think of a wooded area with trees. But that's not what this wilderness is. This wilderness is a barren, rocky area near the Dead Sea. And it's significant it's near the Dead Sea because that's what Israel's religion was like at this time. It was like the Dead Sea. You would not find life in it. And John goes out and preaches in a very difficult place. He doesn't start a ministry and say, where's the easiest place to attract the largest crowds and get the most people? No, he goes to a barren desert and begins to preach there. So he's out in the wilderness preaching, and here's his message, verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This message of repentance, it means to turn. Repentance has the idea that you're going one direction, you're literally going a direction, and you turn from the direction you were going and go another direction. In this case, you are headed towards sin, you are trusting in sin, you are seeking to find joy and satisfaction and peace and contentment in sin, and you turn toward Christ. Repent. Turn from your sin. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is going to come bring the kingdom in. Now, he won't bring the kingdom in in its full here. We're still waiting for him to return to bring the kingdom in in its full. But he does bring the kingdom in. He ushers it in in the start here. So that's his message. And you know what's interesting about the message John preaches? When Jesus begins to preach, his message is the exact same message that John the Baptist preached. Exact same words, exact same message. Jesus preaches the same thing that John preaches. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And for us, sometimes it's the most simple messages we didn't invent it. We don't need to create anything new. In fact, if it's new, it's probably not true. Everything that is true of God has already been spoken that we can understand and receive. So we can trust that. We can preach that. We can speak that. We don't need to come up with something new. No, Jesus preaches the same message. And it tells us in verse 3, for this is what the prophet Isaiah had said. There's three prophecies here wrapped into one. One of them from Isaiah, another one from Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, another one from Malachi chapter 4 verse 4 and 6. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. That was John's job. Make his paths straight. Make it easy for Jesus' ministry to begin. John the Baptist's ministry was very brief. Most believe it was less than a year. John the Baptist started his ministry around age 30, probably by age 31. He's had his head cut off. His ministry doesn't last long. In fact, his ministry can be summed up with the message in John 3.30 that says this, He must increase, I must decrease. John's ministry was all about increasing Christ, him decreasing. In fact, that's the message of all of us. That should be our cry and call in ministry. Jesus, increase in my life. Let me decrease. And John 
He comes to prepare the way for the Lord. You know, whenever a king would come into town in the ancient world, they would literally go out and repair the roads and make them straight. We still do some of the same things today. We'll see it here in Addis Ababa. Maybe it's a dignitary from another nation or an official here from Ethiopia. But perhaps they'll be going to a meeting and they'll literally close the roads. Why? Doesn't have to deal with traffic. Can go straight to where they're headed to make the way clear, to make the way smooth, where you don't have to deal with traffic. That's what John the Baptist is doing. He's clearing much of the traffic for Jesus. He's making the way straight. He's laying the road so that Jesus Christ can come in His ministry launch. In fact, Jesus' early disciples, we know for sure that two of them, most likely four of them, were followers of Jesus Christ, I mean of John the Baptist, before they followed Jesus. So he literally prepares the way. And it tells us here what he looks like. Garments of camel's hair, leather, be- uh, leather belt around his waist, food of locusts and honey. Again, he looks strange. He looks out of step. Think about how people dressed 400 years ago. It varies in different cultures. But if someone came in here dressed in the manner that looked 400 years they would look a little out of step. That's how John the Baptist was. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets. And it tells us in verse 5, all Jerusalem, Judea, and the region were going to the Jordan. Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the center of religious activity. It was the center of Judaism. It was where they, they believed true religion was, but the temple was corrupt in Jesus' day. The the Sadducees were running the temple. The Sadducees didn't even believe Messiah was coming. They only believed the first five books of the Bible. So the temple had become corrupt. And these Jewish people are leaving Jerusalem and going out to the desert to hear John the Baptist. And the movement is large. Many people are coming. And here's what they're coming to do in verse 6. Look at this. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins. That word Jordan, the Jordan River, it has this idea. It's the river of judgment. You cross over the Jordan River. The idea is you cross the Jordan to find life. You cross over from judgment. And they're coming and being baptized. Now, baptism is something radical. See, in the Old Testament, the Jewish people weren't baptized. If a Gentile wanted to become a Jewish person, they would be baptized. It was saying... I'm not, I'm not right with God. I've got to get right with God. And you would come and be baptized. These are Jewish people leaving the center of Judaism, coming out to the desert and saying, we're not truly Jewish. We're not a true Israelite. We may be one in ethnicity, but we're not one in heart and in spirit. And they're being baptized, confessing their sins. That's what Jesus came to deal with. When Jesus came, he came to deal with the greatest problem that you and I have ever known, the greatest problem this world has ever seen, and that problem is sin. He came to deal with the sins of the world, and they come to John the Baptist, and they are confessing their sin. There's something beautiful and powerful about confession of sin. You see, as a Christian, we confess our sin, and we're forgiven through Christ. 
And because Christ has dealt with sin, you don't need to regularly confess your sin to be saved. Once you're saved, you're born again, you're a new creation, you are secure in Christ. Yet you do need to confess your sin in order to walk in fullness of relationship with Christ, in order to walk in right standing with Him, in order to experience the joy and the fullness He has for you. So we are to be a people who regularly confess our sin to one another. James speaks of confessing our sin. And that's what they're coming to do. And in verse 7, he sees many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to their baptism. Now these are the two prominent groups in Jesus' day, but they're prominent for different reasons. The Pharisees. Now if we called somebody a Pharisee, that'd be a great insult. Nobody wants to be called a Pharisee. But the Pharisees, they were actually the ones who believed Messiah was coming. They believed in the entirety of the Old Testament. Many of Jesus' early followers were actually Pharisees. Nicodemus was a Pharisee who came to Jesus. Joseph Arimathea was a Pharisee who came to Christ. And I believe that many of the early Jewish converts who trusted Christ were Pharisees, though there were many who rejected him. The Pharisees are the largest group in number. The Sadducees, they're very small. They make up far less than 10% of the population. Most of the priesthood at this time was Sadducees. They did not believe that Messiah was coming. They did not believe in the first, they only believed in the first five books of the, of the Bible. They did not believe in the resurrection after life. They believed when you die, you're dead, you're dirt. And the Sadducees, though, they had the money, they had the power, they controlled the temple. So these two people come to Jesus, one numerically large, the other wealthy and powerful. And they had a means. There were many people coming claiming to be Messiah at this time. And there was a three-step process for saying, is this truly the Messiah? Here's how this three-step process went. First, the Sanhedrin, that's the 70 rulers of Israel, they would send out an investigative team. And that investigative team would just come and observe. That's all they would do. No questions asked. And then they would go back and tell the Sanhedrin, we saw this person, here's what they said, it was significant. And then they would say, go ask them questions. And those questions would be things like, who are you? Where are you from? What are you doing here? Then they would come back and they would declare a verdict. We believe this person's Messiah. Or we don't believe this person's Messiah. We see all three of those steps happen with John. We see all three of those steps happen with Jesus. In fact, later in Matthew's Gospel, they're going to bring their verdict to Jesus, and here's their verdict. You are Beelzebub. That's how you do your works. They reject him as the Messiah. But here, you'll notice the Pharisees don't speak a word to John the Baptist. All they're doing is observing the very first step. John has a not-so-friendly greeting for them. He says, You brood of vipers, in verse 7, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Now get this. He calls them a brood of vipers. That's like calling them evil. And he says there's a wrath to come. Now the wrath of God is something not very popular to talk about. It's not something that I enjoy speaking of. I think any person who enjoys the wrath of God, there's probably something a little off about that. 
But know this, Scripture speaks of a God who has wrath against sin, who has wrath against those who have rebelled against him, and he's coming saying there is a wrath to come. Notice, John is going to speak that there is a judgment, that that is reality. Though we don't like it, though it doesn't make it feel, us feel good, it doesn't mean it's not true. Jesus speaks of these things. John speaks of these things. And in verse 8, listen to what he says. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance is the clearest mark of a converted person. Of a born-again Christian, how do you see, what's the evidence of a born-again life? That is repentance. That means when we see our sin and we know it's sin, we confess it to Jesus and turn from it and go back to Him. You see, a Christian is called to live a lifestyle of repentance. It doesn't mean we're not going to sin. We'll still struggle with sin. But when we see our sin, we confess it. We mourn it. We grieve it. We don't seek to minimize it. We don't seek to pretend like it doesn't hurt. We don't seek to pretend like it's not a big deal. No, we confess it and turn and run from it. And he says, bear fruit. Now, we talk about bearing fruit. Scripture speaks of a few types of fruit. There's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. For the Christian, those things should be increasing in all of our lives. They should become more evident in our lives. People should see those more and more in our lives as we become more and more like Christ. There's also the fruit of ministry. As we share the gospel, as we invest in others, as we disciple others, there will be the fruit of ministry in a Christian's life. Now, we have to be careful with the fruit of ministry because some people's calling, they will bear much fruit. Others will labor in hard places with difficult people and will see very little fruit. So we don't measure it by how much fruit we have, but we measure it by faithfulness and the fact that we see a fruitfulness in the Christian's life. So he says, here, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And notice something. In your life, if you don't see the fruit of the Spirit increasing, in your life, if you don't see the fruit of ministry in any way, if you don't have a heart's desire to declare the gospel and to see others grow in Christ's likeness, realize the issue perhaps is that you're not keeping with repentance. That you're not living a lifestyle of repentance. That that's not a regular thing for you. No, we are called to be a repentant people. In verse 9, he tells them, don't presume to say we have Abraham as our father. For if you ask a Jewish person, how do you know you're in right relationship with God? How do you know that you're secure, that you're okay? They'd say, well, we got Abraham. We're his children. They claimed it based on their ethnicity, that they were Jewish. There's all sorts of things that people believe make them secure today. One of the most prominent is that we're just good. We believe, hey, I'm a pretty good person. And God would not put a good person in hell. So therefore, I must be okay. But our starting point was wrong. We've rebelled against God. We are sinful. We, we aren't good. No, our goodness cannot save us. 
Neither can our religious practices. They can't save us. Neither can our family of origin, our family of birth. None of that can save us. The only thing that can save us is Jesus Christ. And here, they believe Abraham being their father will save them. And he says, God can raise up out of these stones, children of Abraham. Now, a couple things on stones. Everything around them is stones. You look everywhere, that's all you would see. Also, in Jewish literature, stones is a phrase often used for Gentiles. A Gentile is simply a person who is non-Jew. A non-Jewish person is a Gentile. So he's even saying here, the gospel, God can raise up children of Abraham out of the Gentiles. And then he begins to speak of the acts is at the root of the tree. And God will cut down every tree that does not bear good fruit and it will be thrown into the fire. Now fire in scriptures used three ways predominantly. One for the Holy Spirit. Secondly, for purification. You would purify things in fire. And third, and most prominently it's used in scripture, for God's judgment. And that's how it's used here. That God will judge those who do not bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In verse 11 he says, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than me, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. Now, if you were a servant, you were to obey every word your master said. But if your master said, untie my sandals, you could say no. Their sandals might be dirty. They may have stepped in manure. They may have walked in Gentile land. And you could say, I will not untie my master's sandals. And that was acceptable. But John the Baptist, he is so lowly, he says, I'm not worthy to untie the Messiah's sandals. He says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then in verse 12, he gives us a picture. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat in the barn, but the chafe will burn up with an unquenchable fire. He's speaking of a separation. Wheat and chafe. Just to look at the two, you can't tell them apart. They look nearly identical. If you took wheat and chafe, you, you couldn't tell which was which. But you can't eat the chafe. You can't eat the wheat. The chafe is useless. So what they would do to separate them is you would go up on a hill and you would have a, a box, a threshing floor. And you would throw the wheat and the chafe into the air with a winnowing fork. You'd pitch them up. And when the wind blew, the chafe, which had no weight to it, would blow away. But the wheat would fall to the threshing floor. And you would separate them. This is a picture of the end times. Sometimes you can't tell who truly trusts God and who doesn't. There are many who can say the right things. Who can show up at the right places. But they truly have not trusted Christ. They may have mentally said, oh, I believe the facts about Jesus, but as far as experience, conversion and being born again and being a new creation, that hasn't happened. And we can't tell the difference always. But then times there will be a separation. And we'll be able to tell who is who. 
And Jesus will be the one to separate them. And speaking of reality of the end times, John doesn't preach a feel-good message. He doesn't preach a comfortable message. But he preaches a true message. A message that the people of Jesus' day needed to hear and a message that the people of our day need to hear. A message that we need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, that we need to be a repentant people. A message that um, we need to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the message we go and proclaim. And church, I pray that we'll be faithful to do that. I know here today, there are the faithful who trust the Lord. But maybe repentance isn't always on your heart and mind. Maybe there's sins that have become acceptable. They aren't that bad. They don't seem that bad, so you just let them go. No, those sins will keep you from experiencing the fullness that Christ has for you and bearing fruit like he would have you bear. We need to confess them. There's others here today that you may show up every week and hear the word preached, but as far as experiencing true conversion, as far as real repentance and really saying, I hate my sin. I want to run from my sin. I don't want to be in my sin anymore. I want to turn from it and go to Jesus. That's not what you're doing. I pray that today might be the day of salvation. None of us have the ability to save anybody else. Only God can save people. But we are called to be faithful, to scatter seed to declare the gospel, to work the soil where the seed can take root and grow. Church, may we be faithful. May we be faithful to do this. May we heed the words of John the Baptist and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Let's pray. God, I do thank you for your word. Your word is true. It is good. It is gracious. And Lord, if there's anything I've said that was misunderstood, untrue, confusing. I pray that you would clear it up or allow it to fall in deaf ears. But Lord, the word that comes from you that is true, may it penetrate our hearts and minds deeply. Lord, to the saints gathered here today, we thank you for redeeming us. We thank you that the kingdom is at hand, that the kingdom is here in our lives, and one day will come in full. May we live a lifestyle of repentance, seeking you. And Lord, for those here today, maybe they don't know if they're saved or are wondering, Lord, may you bring clarity. May they have a, an assurance in their salvation. We can be secure in our salvation because Jesus is secure. But Lord, I pray that no one is, has a false security, a false security in religion or religious practices or doing good deeds or a false religion or false belief and false security in their ethnicity or their family of origin. Lord, it's only Christ who can save us. And we thank you for that. So Lord, now as we continue on in worship, may we truly worship the living God who came to save and redeem us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.